Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, we brought on Lynn Alden, and I can't believe we had the opportunity to chat with her. If you're not familiar with Lynn, her Twitter, her little, little Twitter, Twitter, I can't speak, her little Twitter bio, her bio on Twitter, how do you say this? What she has written about herself on her profile on Twitter says, founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy, fundamental investing with a global macro overlay, finance engineering blended background. And what that means to me is she is one of the clearest thinkers on macroeconomics that we have ever come across. We started subscribing to her newsletter some time ago, started following her on Twitter, started watching some of her interviews, and she just has a really fantastic ability to break down what's happening right now this year and what may be happening in the 2020s using data, using historical comparisons to just give us a context of all this stuff. So on this episode of the podcast, we talk about why the 1940s is an interesting era to look at for some analysis on what may happen in the 2020s. We talk about some other macroeconomic analysts and their views and her opinions on them. We talk about populism, the destruction of the middle class. We, of course, get into things like gold. And then Bitcoin is a big discussion towards the end. And not really just, you know, rah-rahing Bitcoin. It's how could the government shut it down? What are the threats? And I kind of pose three different things at her to get her opinions on Bitcoin. So just really thrilled to be able to share this podcast with you. She is an absolute fantastic thing on macroeconomics. Just thrilled that we were able to have her here. Can you tell I'm excited that we had her on this podcast? Totally am. So uh, before we get started, if you are listening to this and you are trying to make sense of the absolute crazy real estate market that is the greater Toronto area and Golden Horseshoe right now with different pockets of activity acting completely differently. So for example, on the outskirts, we are seeing properties get 30 offers, 32 offers, 35 offers. It's absolutely insane. And what, by outskirts, I mean like an hour outside of the city. So let's let's call it like, you know, Kitchener, Cambridge, Waterloo, Hamilton, Peterborough, Barrie, um, all the way further to St. Catharines, uh, Brantford, Ontario. All these areas are absolutely exploding with offers on properties. And it's what happens when the Bank of Canada chooses to reduce interest rates 1.5%. If you want some of our thinking and how we are using today's world to buy investment real estate, the strategies we're using, you can come to our free introductory training class and you can register for that directly at canadianrealestatetraining.com. That's www.canadianrealestatetraining.com. That's an introductory class that we are doing virtually once a month right now. We share a lot of the different strategies we're working with with investors right here, right now in the greater Toronto and Golden Horseshoe area. area. And at the end, Nick and I stick around for a wide open Q&A on all and any subjects related to real estate investment properties, our history with it, our thoughts on the economy going forward, whatever comes to mind. So if you are thinking about getting into real estate investing and don't know where to start, you can come and check out our free 90-minute class. You can register directly for that at www.canadianrealestatetraining.com. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life your term show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, great. We are live with Lynn Alden. And I was just telling Lynn, I don't think I've prepared as much for anyone else 
other than Lynn? I've written down the odd question here and there. Most of the time we just hit record and start these things. But for Lynn, I feel like I needed to, to, get, uh, to get busy. So I just wanted to jump in. A lot of the people that we work with are kind of concerned on uh, what they're trying to anticipate over the next 10 years in the economy. In some of the research reports that you put out, you make comparisons to the 1940s, and I love it. You know, you kind of talk about the Great Depression and then the 40s. Can you talk just about why you compare this era that you see now to that era, just to kind of kick us off here? What is it, you know, what, what are the similarities? And do you really believe that we can take some insights from that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thanks for having me. Uh, and so the comparison from the 1940s uh, mostly looks at the long-term debt cycle. Uh, so this was a topic popularized by Ray Dalio, the founder of the world's largest hedge fund, uh, Bridgewater. Uh, and it's a, it's a concept that I've kind of taken and done a lot of research on and, and published a lot of information on. And so, uh, you know, taking a step back for a second, we're all familiar with the short-term business cycle, which is like the boom bust, you know, recession growth period cycle. And so what happens is, you know, during, during the bullish part of the cycle, leverage builds up in the system. Uh, and it gets more and more frothy. And eventually towards the end of the cycle, you get you know, malinvestment, you get over leveraged, you get too much kind of uh, enthusiasm. And then either some sort of external shock or some sort of natural internal shock happens and you get you know, a, a recession, you get like a deleveraging event. Uh, it's messy for a lot of people that were over leveraged. And so, but then what policymakers do is they come in and they cut interest rates to try to stimulate more lending and make it easier to service this debt. Uh, then you also usually get fiscal stimulus to support unemployed people and other things like that, or sometimes to do infrastructure, whatever the case may be. And so what they do is they cut that deleveraging cycle short. And so uh, then you start building up from there. And so if you string multiple um, uh, short-term uh, cycles together, you get what looks like you know higher and higher debt as a percentage of GDP in each cycle, because you only deleverage like half the way, and then you build up to a new high, and then you deleverage half the way. And so you get higher and higher structural leverage. Uh, at the same time, interest rates are doing the opposite thing. So they're getting lower and lower levels and lower highs, lower lows. And then eventually you run into the zero bound. So interest rates run into zero, debt levels become extraordinarily high. And that's when you, you've reached the end of a long-term debt cycle. And so the last time we did that, you know, a lot of my focus is on the United States, but it, you know, most of the developed countries are kind of in a similar uh, you know, kind of a time cycle because uh, it, it's, it's pretty globalized. And so in the United States, for example, uh, you know, we hit we hit the zero bound back in the early 1930s, uh, you know, the beginning of the Great Depression. Uh, and so that was a whole process playing out through the 30s and 40s. And similarly, so we hit the zero bound during the great financial crisis. Uh, and then, you know, we hit it again here in, in the in the 2020s uh, in response to the pandemic. And if you look at, you know, all sorts of metrics like debt to GDP, uh, and I'm talking about total debt. So that's public debt and private debt. Uh, and I also break them apart sometimes and show the different kind of uh, cycles playing out. Or you can look at debt to money supply. All these different things tend to show that, you know, there's this big kind of, uh, you know, call it an 80-year cycle playing out in the background. Uh, and, and these are kind of structural, uh, you know, big changes. And the difference between a, the end of a long-term debt cycle and a short-term debt cycle is that usually a long-term debt cycle is so, uh, so leveraged and so hard to unravel that it usually involves a, a pretty notable currency devaluation. So when you see the, okay, so then what about other things like, you know, how social, every time I look at the Congressional Budget Office reports, I don't think they include things like social security payments that are due to the American public at some point into some of their analysis or how much they are reporting as their amount of debt to GDP. When you hear me say that, 
what comes to mind for you? Like, is this something that they're just keeping off the books? Does this make the whole situation in the 2020s even more convincing to us that it is the end of a debt super cycle here? Because we're not even counting some things that we know they're going to have to pay out. Like what, yeah, what, comes, yeah, what comes to mind when I say that? Yeah, in a way. So one thing that's funny about the CPO is that they never they never forecast a recession. So they yeah, they have, exactly. they, they have yeah. these 10-year forward models and they assume just smooth GDP growth, no recession. And that's why they always understate what actually happens. So even though we we literally, you know, right before the pandemic, we had 10 years without a recession, which is the longest stretch in American history. Uh, and they were still like their their 10-year projection was still just zero recessions. And that's just how they didn't they make uh, you laugh. I, I was just laughing because yeah. I look at those reports. I'm like, how can they even forecast this? I'm not an economist. And I'm looking at this just kind of laughing. Yeah. Okay, so and, you're on the same page. Yeah. And there are, I mean, there are, there are countries like Australia that have managed to push, uh, you know, multiple decades without a recession. So it's not unheard of, but for that to be a base case is, is just asking to, to understate it. And it's even for political reasons that you understate it, right? Because you're kind of, you're, you, you can't just say we're, we're practically insolvent in a decade. You have to say, you know, if this plays out, if this is fine, then we can kind of thread the needle here. And that's just kind of how they calculate it. And so, uh, you know, they refer to the actual debt, not the, not the, you know, the, the liabilities that are, you know, going to be debt. Uh, one interesting thing we saw is that, you know, so we all saw in here in 2020, the pandemic blew out, you know, everyone's finances. So we saw, you know, the American deficit blew out. We saw that, you know, uh, Bank of Canada's balance sheet, you know, just go vertical. We, every, every developed country. We were really good. At. We were really good. We were good. <laughs> yeah, just Canada just com- yeah, complete vertical. And uh, so one thing I've been pointing out, though, is in the United States, we we started to have a structural deficit uh, going into this. Uh, so now most developed countries run, uh, you know, uh, some degree of deficits uh, over the long term. What made the United States interesting was that normally we have a bigger deficit during a recession, obviously, uh, because you get a decline in tax revenues and you get usually more spending. Uh, and then you start to get a, a narrowing of that deficit during economic expansions. And that's, that's been pretty much clockwork. Uh, now, what we saw, however, is it starting in around 2015, 2016. So we had, a, you know, from, from say 2009 to, to 2015 or so, we had a declining deficit as a percentage of GDP. But starting in 2016, we started to get an increasing deficit uh, as a percentage of GDP, even though we were still in an economic expansion. And that's because we started to have a demographic shift where, uh, you know, the, the, the Social Security and Medicare became so top heavy due to demographics that our, our structural deficit just started basically gradually blowing out. And so we went into this pandemic with a 5% deficit of GDP, which is one of the largest among developed countries. Uh, and that was that was before the pandemic. And so we already have this structural thing. So even when we get all, th- all this stimulus done, even when you know looking out to say 2022, we still have this structural impairment in place based on current taxation, current expenditures. Uh, and that, you know, that's, that that's something that's kind of new for this cycle compared to previous long-term debt cycles, but it still plays into the overall reason of why a currency devaluation is eventually, you know, almost inevitable uh, from a mathematical standpoint. Okay. So then when you compare this era to the 1940s and you see the deficits, because I think one of the charts you've shared is that just the illustration that shows deficits really increasing. I think it's like early 1940s where they really get big for about yeah. three, four, five years. Is that something you're anticipating then we see here just because of the math that you're sharing? Like they're just going to have to run these deficits. So is this in our future? And then I want to get to some of the inflation deflation talk that you've written about recently. 
Yeah, so I think so. So if you look at the 1930s, they started to run big deficits uh, and they hit the zero bound and you had that kind of period of economic stagnation. But it wasn't until the 1940s that they ran absolutely silly deficits, like like deficits that were like 30 percent of GDP. And of course, the, you know, that was to, to fight World War II. I mean, that was like, you know, this this external thing said you basically have to do whatever you can. And so we that was kind of the political cover to just just throw money at it. And so the United States, like, you know, wasn't all for the war. They also like radically built up their domestic industrial base uh, because that, that's where a lot of the spending was. And so even after the war, that still existed. And so it was, and then they, you know, when, when all the soldiers came home, they spent money to put 8 million of them into, you know, college and training programs. Uh, and so it, it was not just, you know, like fighting in Europe and Japan, it was all this domestic spending, uh, but it was all like kind of the cover for it was the war. And so now we're in a situation where we have the, the cover of the pandemic. Uh, so multiple countries have all this cover to do, you know, deficits that they haven't seen since World War II. Uh, and so that, that can have certain benefits. Uh, but at the same time, if you look at what happened during the 1940s, you know, most, most uh, countries around the world basically ended a sovereign debt bubble in the sense that they, they inflated a large portion of their sovereign debt away. Uh, and so it's not- so, was it real, so you're not saying it was real growth? Well, it, was, it was a bit of both. So you had you had real growth, uh, but then you even had inflationary growth on top of that real growth. Uh, so if you were invested in things that benefited from real growth, like equities and things like that, you did well. Uh, but if you were invested in fixed income or cash, uh, depending on what country you're in, you lost a big chunk of your purchasing power. So if you're in the United States, you lost about a third of your purchasing power, uh, even though you know we won the war. We were on the winning side, but we still, like if you were a saver or a bond investor, you still lost on a real basis, even though you still, you know, you, there was no nominal default. You still got your your your, your principal back. You still got your your interest, uh, but bond yields were capped well below the inflation rate, so you lost purchasing power. And that that varied by different amounts around, uh, you know, the world. So, for example, if you were in the UK, uh, you lost more. If you were, you know, if you were in Germany, it, it's far worse, obviously. So uh, it's not, it wasn't hyperinflation. But it was, uh, you know, taking a chunk of that debt away through uh, a, a rather high period of inflation. So do you think, you know, you, you know how you discuss fiscal policy is really going to have to come into play here? Do you, do you, I guess for the, I'm just trying to think of the, the typical person listening to this, they, they're thinking, you know, am I looking at inflation or deflation? And I think the way you articulate it's really nice is you, you say, hey, there's inflation in some areas of deflation in other areas. But I just want to read off some of what you kind of put together here, because this is really, this is fascinating to me. You're saying there's deflationary forces in high private debt are deflationary. Slowing proper population growth is deflationary. Technology is deflationary. Wealth concentration into fewer hands that has been occurring over the last 10, 20, 30 years is deflationary. Commodity oversupply is deflationary. Outsourcing is deflationary. And, uh, and you're referring to out, uh, outsourcing of labor as the labor costs um, get downward pressure. So we have all these deflationary uh, you know, things. And it kind of reminds me of what Jeff Booth talks about when he talks yeah. about the technology aspect of it. Like we have this massive structural deflationary things that seem to be occurring. But then you, you published this awesome chart where you took some St. Louis Fed data and you said that the government transfer payments this time around have just kind of blown through the roof. So we have all these deflationary forces but the government has just thrown so many money direct so much money directly to the people or the population that you know what do we look at here do you think some of this kind of will create some inflation in the cpi where or, or do we just have to constantly over the next few years understand that there's going to be inflationary forces at play in asset prices perhaps and the deflationary forces at play in labor labor costs and that kind of thing do we have to be you know nimble enough to operate with both concepts in mind 
Yeah, I think so. I think that's a good way to think about it. It's kind of breaking into different types of inflation, different areas of inflation. Uh, so I, my, my base case is that uh, looking out over the, a fairly long term, like call it five years, uh, that we're going to see uh, an inflationary cycle. And you know, it, we've already had many types of inflation. So, for example, uh, as you pointed out with this, with these big, uh, you know, uh, stimulus and, and government transfer payments, you know, in the United States, broad money supply went up like 25% year over year, uh, which is it, nothing compared. Like you have to look back to to literally the 1940s to find similar metrics. And so, even you know, people often point out that the global financial crisis, there was like central banks raising their balance sheets, but most of that didn't get actually into the broad money supply, whereas this year it did. So it just went, you know, almost almost one for one directly into the broad money supply. Uh, and uh, but we had a collapse a collapse in monetary velocity this year because you know people couldn't spend, they couldn't travel, they they couldn't go to the restaurants. Uh, many people were facing uh, you know economic issues, so it was mostly a replacement for what what you know incomes they lost and things like that. Uh, however, you know as we go into 2021, 22, 23, right? So we you know we hopefully get these these vaccines come out and and you know the the virus just kind of works itself through the the population, whatever the case may be. I mean it's it's you know it'll be different than it was here in 2020 with so many lockdowns, uh, and at the same time. You know, we we can slowly start chipping away at some of those deflationary forces uh, just because of the way it's working out. So, for example, offshoring, in in some ways, kind of peaked around 2008 and has been kind of flat since then. And now there's political trends to reshore some of that labor. So that's something to keep an eye on. Then, you know, as far as commodity oversupply, uh, you know, we had the U.S. Uh, and and Canadian kind of shale oil boom. A lot of that was unprofitable. Investors have gotten killed for like a decade there. So there's not a lot of new money coming in. Plus, you have the ESG. Uh, kind of mandate to to not you know a lot of these institutions are not you know uh, putting money into oil and gas for uh, you know kind of social political reasons, uh, and then uh, you know a lot of uh, companies cut their capex this year right because we had this big kind of temporary destruction of demand, uh, and so if you look out over the next five years uh, there there are a lot of commodities like copper uranium. Uh, and then possibly oil and gas looking out, you know, that's a little bit, there's still, still some of the supply got there. But if you look out, you know, maybe five years, you're starting to get, you know, less commodity abundance. Uh, and so when you have this kind of really loose fiscal policy combined with some degree of commodity, uh, you know, tightness, uh, I do think that inflation is, is somewhat of a risk to be aware of uh, as we go deeper into this decade. Okay, so I want to I want to I want to get your thoughts on gold and Bitcoin in a second. But you mentioned a podcast on Twitter that I ended up listening to, where Felix Zuloff says something. He said something kind of interesting. That was a great podcast. He said something interesting in that podcast where he said that he anticipates, and I'm paraphrasing here, pretty much everything to possibly lose over the next few years, and that you know you kind of just I interpreted that as you just kind of want to be in the thing that's going to lose less. If that makes sense, you know, if everything's going down, you want to be in the thing that loses less, but then he kind of extrapolated that thought onto whatever does survive the next few years is going to be taxed by the government incredibly. And so it was kind of this like negative thing. He's, he's such a good guy and so well articulated in his thoughts, but I'm like, oh my God, like you basically, even if you pick the right thing, the government's just going to come and tax it. It reminds me, I don't know too much of it, but I think there were some windfall taxes on the on oil in the late 1970s or something like that. Um, it kind of reminded me of that. Do you, what, when, when you heard him say that on that podcast, and for those listening who don't know him, he's like a macro um, economic analyst, I would say, investment advisor. Um, what came to mind for you? when you heard him say those things? 
Yeah, so I thought that was an excellent podcast, which is why I shared it. And, you know, his insights, I agree with like maybe 90, 95% of what he said. You know, there's always things around the margin that I might view a little bit differently. So I think that that particular statement, for example, was a little bit too cleanly stated. Like, that, okay. you know, okay. because it depends on it depends on what government you're looking at, right? So he's, I think he's based in Switzerland. You're looking at, I mean, there's tons of different, you know, developed countries, emerging countries. And so it depends on your jurisdiction. So what happens to me in the United States might be different from what happens to you in Canada, might be different than what happens in Germany, might be different than Japan. So, you know, it depends on, you know, where the listener is and, and you know, what their kind of government's uh, uh, prospects are. Uh, so there's that to keep in mind that there is kind of uh, jurisdictional. And that's why, I mean, there's that whole like plan B movement where people have like a second passport, right? So they're worried that, the, you know, they're, they want to have, they want to reduce their jurisdictional uh, you know, concentration risk, whatever the case may be. So yeah, you're talking to someone who has three citizenships. I'm Canadian. My my mother's Scottish. So I have a British citizenship. My father's Croatian. So I have a Croatian citizenship as well. So yeah, I'm one of those people. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to yeah, go. Wherever you go. The- yep. <laughs> Whichever one is going to take yeah, us. Yeah. Uh, and so well, from a historical context, uh, these the, the ending of these long-term debt cycles tend to be pretty transformative transformative changes. And uh, they usually also occur, you know, going into that crisis, usually wealth concentration is at like a really high peak. Uh, And so, and I've been sharing statistics that, you know, we have kind of wealth concentration levels, you know, the United States is is, is more concentrated than most other developed countries, uh, but it's happening in many, many places. And so the United States, for example, were as concentrated as we were roughly uh, in the 1920s and, and early 30s. Uh, and usually during these kind of currency devaluations or, or kind of big kind of fiscal expansions, usually you get a, a reduction in that wealth concentration. And so in the United States, that took the form of, you know, you, you had a currency devaluation. So, you know, big holders of cash and bonds lost some of their value. Uh, meanwhile, people on the, you know, the working class, middle class, you know, they benefited from the fiscal spending. So they got, you know, the industrial base blown out. They got, uh, you know, education paid for, things like that. Uh, and at the same time, we had a really high uh, income taxes. So that's when, I mean, United States technically got up to like 90% income tax rates on the top, you know, in the top uh, bracket. Now that's, you know, a lot of people didn't pay that actual number, but it just kind of showed how high that scaled. Uh, and so I do think, you know, at, going into this, you know, kind of later in the decade, we're going to see probably uh, policies like that, that, you know, try to, to, to you know, increase taxes on, on places that they see have, you know, either not been taxed much or that you know where they think most of the wealth is. So I do think that that kind of tax risk is something to be aware of. Got it. And then in your analysis, do you put any or how much weight do you put towards just the emergence of of more and more populism? You know, a chart we share in Canada here is we took the property prices in the greater Toronto area and mapped them out from 1969 to present day and then took income from Statistics Canada and mapped out income growth. And I don't have it in front of you right now, but if you saw the chart, the divergence is just insane. Like property prices just continue this major acceleration and incomes are just this little acceleration. So the gap is just widening and we're, we're just calling it the destruction of the middle class in this country, which I'm really proud that the middle class here has been so good. I, I kind of grew up in that. So to see this kind of divergence where asset prices are growing like this and incomes are just slowly growing, I can kind of see this country kind of get, getting pulled around a little bit already as well. And what, you know, does that affect any of your investment narrative at all? The populism that's kind of coming out? Absolutely. I mean, I think that that populism is what drives the eventual policy shifts. Uh, and so when you have this period of high wealth concentration, you start to get this, you know, more and more populism. Uh, and it emerges both on the right and the left. I mean, there's, you know, there's different types of populism, right? So, uh, you know, there's kind of nationalistic right populism, then there's kind of like more socialist left pop, you know, there's all sorts of different flavors of populism. 
Uh, and so it's it's more I, I define I've kind of described that as not just left versus right. It, there's like established left, established right, and then there's like populist left, populist right, and of course even in those groups there's you know factions in there. So there's more extreme, there's less extreme elements. There's all sorts of it's a you know melting pot, uh, and so populism tends to rise during these periods. Uh, and there's actually a really good book called The Fourth Turning uh, by Neil Howe. It's a, he's a historian that, that covers it and shows, uh, you know, kind of I focus on the financial cycles, uh, whereas he shows that kind of the social and political cycles that happen along this kind of long-term debt cycle, uh, because all of his kind of crisis era fourth turnings that he calls them happen during long-term debt cycles. It's kind of this big period of transformative change. Uh, and so I think, I do think populism is a factor to be aware of. Uh, in portfolio management, right? Because you have to take that into account in your jurisdictional risk, as well as when you estimate what's, what fiscal policy is likely to look like over the next, you know, call it five years, uh, because you see, you know, where the, the kind of population is headed in terms of things that they want or that they expect or kind of that certain things are at a breaking point. You know, uh, I, I watched Yugoslavia go through hyperinflation. We had family there when that was going on and it kind of broke, in, it broke into pieces. And I kind of noticed something that, it, you know, it's why I got into gold really early and why I've always kind of believed in gold, because I noticed that anyone who had a little bit of gold, anyone who had cash, basically at one point, our aunt went to the bank. They didn't even ca count the paper currency. They just had a little plexiglass box and they asked you to stuff all the currency in there. And when the box was full, they give you a certain amount of denomination of the new currency. Like as ridiculous as that sound, that happened in the 1990s. Like that's not that long ago. And I noticed that anyone, so, so those, the people who survived that were basically the poor, it didn't matter because you had no savings. You know, you're kind of living hand to mouth a little bit. It doesn't matter when the currency kind of changes over. If you're a farmer and you have some, you know, you, you can supply yourself with food. None of that really affects you too much. The middle class really got affected. There's not much middle class there, but I, I mean, anyone who, who had some cash savings they kind of just got wiped out. But the people who had ownership in things, they kind of survived because although it was denominated once, you know, in dinars, and then later maybe, maybe even the mortgage went to Swiss francs or something entirely different, you owned that property. And I've always thought ownership of assets is important in times like this because you can let the currency kind of flail all over the place, but if you can control the asset, manage the income and the expenses really well, you're going to survive. It doesn't matter what comes your way. And it's kind of why we got into real estate because we thought, oh, this is a growing population base here. Interest rates are low. Let's, you know, that's our biggest risk. So let's watch that. But if we're smart with our properties, we might be able to survive anything that comes our way as long as there's demand for them. The price might go way up. They might come down. I don't care. As long as the income is covering my expenses and maybe leave some left over, I think I'm going to survive whatever comes my way. And a lot of that thinking comes from that era in the 1990s and what I saw go down in Yugoslavia because owners of assets seem to get through that no problem. When you hear me say that, do you, what do you think? Do you think that's completely ridiculous? No, I agree. I mean, you know, historically, uh, the best kind of assets to get through this cycle are harder assets. So things like, uh, you know, real estate, precious metals, commodity companies or commodities themselves, uh, you know, it's equities to some extent. So all these kind of different, uh, you know, harder assets. Uh, and then especially if you tie that so that your, your liabilities are fixed income, I mean, fi fixed rate, uh, and your, whereas your income sources are more variable, uh, that's kind of the best kind of setup you can have uh, to, to kind of get through uh, some degree of currency devaluation. 
Uh, and so that even in hyperinflation, you want to own kind of harder assets. And if you have just kind of, you know, non-hyperinflation, you just have, you know, inflation shooting above expectation for a few years, it's still good to be in those kind of harder assets and to have your liabilities denominated in currencies, the fixed rates that are kind of getting inflated away. Uh, so that's actually a structurally good thing. Uh, and there's also, you know, that's, that's where also where you get that kind of um, that previous discussion of even if you do the right thing, you have to then watch out for political risk, uh, because even if you did the right thing, you can still, they, they, they kind of go after people to do the right thing. So for example, you mentioned, so if I, if I point out to Argentina, for example, uh, anyone who was holding say gold or dollars during some of Argentina's kind of famous currency crises, those people did well. Uh, but then if they, you know, had their dollars in a bank, for example, they were to say, oh, sorry, you know, your, your, your dollars are being converted to Argentine pesos. Uh, thanks for playing. Try again next time. Uh, and so that's kind of a risk to watch out for is that, you know, you can, you can do the right things, but if you have counterparty risk or uh, jurisdictional risk, you can still kind of get you know, kind of hit by a trap there. Yeah. And the thought that comes to my mind is also deflation. Cause if deflation comes in and you're holding debt on some properties, great, you're managing the income and the expenses, but it's not going to be a good feeling if the prices deflate down and your debt's yeah. greater than the asset price. So that's kind of always in the back of my mind. When, when, when you said equities as one thing to invest there, what do you mean when you say equities, which equities are you talking about? Well, like the stock market, like individual okay. stocks or so it, stocks have a, like a less clear relationship with inflation. So things like real estate, precious metals, commodities, they, they do well in inflation. Uh, bonds do poorly. Uh, then generally the opposite for deflation. Stocks are a little bit in the middle uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that they're very sensitive to interest rates. Uh, so uh, if you have low interest rates, uh, so if you, if you can't get almost any income from say a 10 year government bond, you're willing to pay up for a dividend stock, right? Because you, if, if sovereign bonds yield 5%, like they did a couple of decades ago, uh, you know, you, you demand pretty high dividend yields and pretty high growth from your stocks in order to compete with that uh, safe kind of guaranteed income. Uh, however, when, when uh, you know, sovereign bonds yield so low or near zero, uh, you're willing to pay up for these dividend stocks because you're still getting say a two or 3% dividend yield, you're getting some growth, you're getting some sort of inflation uh, protection. Now, the problem is if you go all the way down to zero uh, interest rates or even slightly negative interest rates uh, and, you, and you bid the price of equities extraordinarily high, uh, then if interest rates ever rise, that tends to put downward pressure on those valuations. Uh, so even though your cash flows are still intact, you can uh, be impaired by valuations. Uh, and so if you look back over the, the previous uh, two inflationary decades in the United States over the past uh, century, uh, it's the 1940s, the 1970s. And... Uh, you know, so the, the commodities did fine in both decades. Like that's, that's you know, some of those kind of uh, hardcore inflationary assets did great. Equities were mixed. So in the 1970s, we had inflation, uh, but, you know, we also had the central banks rapidly raising their interest rates to try to combat inflation. And so that put down pressure on equities across the board, especially uh, growth-oriented equities that are more sensitive to high interest rates, whereas value stocks, uh, did, did they held up better. Now, if you look at the 1940s, equities did very well despite being inflationary. And that's because of a couple of reasons. One is they started that decade at low valuations uh, because you know we had the Great Depression, then we had a war, so people were pessimistic. Uh, whereas the 1970s, you know, by the late 60s, stocks were very highly valued. Uh, so the 1970s, you had a decrease in stock valuations, a raise in interest rates, and so you had poor stock performance in the 70s. In the 40s, they did not raise interest rates despite high inflation because sovereign debt was so high. And that's the difference between a long-term debt cycle and, and not being in that. So the 1970s, you had low sovereign debt as a percentage of GDP, 
uh, and low debt in general. So they were able to raise interest rates to combat inflation. At the end of a long-term debt cycle, like in the 1940s, uh, you know, the private debt was high, but it was particularly sovereign debt was so high that they had to cap, you know, the central bank just capped yields uh, for, for, you know, the entire uh, uh, sovereign bond duration curve. And so you basically had the full curve below the inflation rate. And so stocks still benefited from low interest rates, uh, even during an inflationary environment. So equity still did uh, reasonably well. So it partially de depends on what nominal interest rates do in that inflationary environment. And it also depends on the type of stocks. If you buy a highly valued tech stock, that's likely to, less likely to do well in inflation. Whereas if you buy a beaten down, you know, like industrial company or something that has pricing power and is cheap, that, that tends to do pretty well in an inflationary environment. Yeah, got it. Okay. Okay. So, so it's, it's a return back to value almost because if you can pick the right value and the stock market outpaces inflation, so you're, you have a real return there, basically you're, 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 you know, whatever you've invested is going up more than the currency is being devalued. Yeah. You can actually get a net gain in that yes. environment, like a real gain. Yeah. Okay. So what, what about, all right. I, I just want to, want to get your thoughts on, on Bitcoin and gold here a little bit, because one thing that we've always told everyone we work with is that, that, Hey, have some good income producing hard assets. And we believe income over the next 10 years is going to be gold. We're calling it like the unicorn. Like if you can create income from properties, that is the unicorn going forward because an income stream is going to be invaluable over the next 10 years. But if you're going to have some savings, you want to have it in some hard money. So since 2008, Nick and I have been telling everyone who will listen, buy gold and like buy gold bullion, you know, get the bullion, tuck it away somewhere. This is kind of like your insurance policy. Just hold some of your savings and hard money because if they play with the currency, this is your savings. And I had outright dismissed Bitcoin for years. Like I had some friends tell me, you know, Tom, you're going to, you're going to pay for things in Bitcoin. And I'm like, this is impossible. Like we run a business, we pay taxes in Canadian dollars. I'm not going to use your Bitcoin. And then March of this year, when COVID hits, I sit down, read some stuff. Um, I, I talked to Saifedina Moose, read the Bitcoin standard. And I, I was talking to Nick. I'm like, Nick, I think I've totally misunderstood this whole Bitcoin thing. We better get some Bitcoin and we get some pretty quick. <laughs> so uh, we kind of dove into the Bitcoin world just this year. So I'm, I'm willing to admit I was completely wrong. And now I'm the other way. And I'm like, wow, this is a beautiful thing. And um, so I have some questions for you. But my first is, isn't do you think Bitcoin may simply go up in in however we measure it, American dollars, let's say, because it's the hardest form of money around? Because when I read history, it seems like people gravitate towards the hardest form of money. Like, you know, we've gone you go from like agri beads and seashells to to metal, like naturally humans over long periods of time. And, and the period of time I'm discussing maybe doesn't match someone's investment time period. So I can understand that. But if Bitcoin is what we think it may be, does it not just get more and more demand because humans gravitate towards the har hardest form of money around? When I, when I say that, what do you think? Well, that's, what, that's what's been happening to the protocol over the past decade. Uh, it's about 11 years old now or so. Uh, and so it has been you know, increasing its market cap pretty rapidly uh, because you know, unlike every other commodity, it has a fixed supply, uh, if you call it like a digital commodity, for example. Uh, and... There's a couple of things to consider. So one is, uh, in general, like hard assets, like a scare, like a specifically monetary assets like gold, uh, their biggest inverse correlation is to real interest rates. Uh, and so if you look at, say, a 50-year price history of gold, uh, whenever, you know, on average, it kind of goes up in price roughly at the, at the rate of per capita broad money supply growth. So as we print more uh, dollars, 
uh, you know, it's, it's really this, that gold is mostly holding its value while those dollars kind of, uh, you know, decrease in value. Uh, and however, sometimes it overshoots or undershoots that trend based on real interest rates. Uh, and it's, you know, if you look at a 50 year chart, it's a very clean uh, inverse correlation, which is, you know, say inflation's high. So say it's like, you know, 4%, uh, but sovereign bonds are paying you 7% because they're trying to control inflation. So you're getting a 3% real yield. Uh, you know, the opportunity cost for holding a scarce yieldless asset that even has a, you know, a storage cost is pretty high. Uh, however, when, it, you know, inflation is 2%, but sovereign bonds are paying you 0% or 1%, so you now have a negative real interest rate. And so it's, it's suddenly that zero yielding scarce asset is a, a far more attractive. And so that, that's this kind of long-term 50-year uh, interplay we've had between gold and real interest rates. Uh, now, Bitcoin is a little bit different because it's, you know, it's, it's like a small cap becoming a big cap. So it's, it's less sensitive to real interest rates because it, it's, you know, it's kind of like how a small growth stock is less uh, sensitive to the economy than a big company that's already established. So, you know, Bitcoin is kind of doing its own thing at the, at the moment, whereas gold is still mostly tied to real interest rates. Uh, but I do think, you know, going forward, uh, B- Bitcoin's kind of competing with gold and it's competing with other assets because, as you pointed out, it, it's a fixed thing. It's benefiting from a network effect. So there's, you know, there's thousands of cryptocurrencies, but none of them have the same level of security and network effect that Bitcoin has. So it has something, you know, it has like a very high percentage of the total cryptocurrency market cap. So every other kind of competing cryptocurrency, you know, it's kind of like if you if you were to start your own Facebook, right? I mean, you could you could literally copy if you copy their code and just like, you know, it's it, it's you know, it's it, here's you know uh, Tom's book, yeah. right? It's yeah. like it's not. There'd be it's three not, people on it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just like the, it's it's. <laughs> hard to get past that initial network effect. And so there's still like, people often look at say the Facebook to MySpace comparison, right? So MySpace it started to get kind of a, you know, kind of breakaway capacity that was a big earlier social network and then Facebook came and eclipsed it. However, they they eclipsed it at a pretty early level. So MySpace, you know, its last funding round is valued at something like 12 billion. So, you know, it, it was getting big, but it wasn't massive yet. So it, it kind of it got a lead and then a, a bigger thing kind of came over and, and and took it before it kind of hit escape velocity. Uh, whereas Bitcoin's already at over 300 billion market capitalization, it's really hard for another cryptocurrency to really kind of displace that network effect at this point. And so when you have that network effect combined with the inherent scarcity in the protocol, uh, it is pretty attractive. And uh, especially, you know, when we talked about it, kind of jurisdictional risk, one thing that attracts people to gold or Bitcoin is that you can kind of self, it's like self-sovereignty. You can, you can self-custody uh, it rather than rely on a counterparty. Uh, so by having, for example, physical coins, physical bars uh, of gold and silver, for example, or platinum, uh, you're kind of off the grid in that way. Uh, so it's harder for that to be kind of confiscated or uh, taken. Uh, same with Bitcoin, where it's encrypted, uh, so you don't need a counterparty to hold it. You can have your own private keys and you can kind of you know, do, do the transactions off the grid. Now, there's still, of course, you know, jurisdictional risk from making it illegal, even though if they even if they can't physically take it, they can still kind of outlaw it or tax it to death or something like that. So there's still kind of that jurisdictional risk, but it's less so than if you have money in the bank or you have kind of a, you know, a, a, an ETF or something that kind of hosts that for you. Uh, it's, it's There's kind of that extra layer of self-sovereignty. And I guess, because that's the biggest kind of risk that I can figure out, because I read your recent article on Bitcoin, which was great, where you kind of demystify a lot of the things that people criticize about it. Uh, so that's just a, a great read. But then I, I was thinking, I was listening to Jim Rogers speak recently, and he said something in the 1930s, how the Bank of England basically said, hey, you can't use any other currency but our own, and it's an act of treason if you use any other currency. 
And I thought, okay, so here's then the best negative, because I'm, I'm pro-Bitcoin, like I'm on the Bitcoin bandwagon completely at this point. But I'm like, okay, the, the threat then is that the government comes in and says, oops, this is getting a little bit too crazy. We're going to make it illegal. We're going to tax any, any profits, excessive, you know, excessive gains from 2020 on anything that you've owned. We're going to tax like 80% of that or whatever. It's also illegal. And um, we are going to release a, a central bank digital currency that's partially backed by gold. And I, I know that they, you know, that would be hard for them to do, but I'm like, hmm, that's interesting because now they've taken, if they say it's partially backed by gold and the fine print of it allows them to play around with the allotment of gold to their CBDC. I'm like that, that's a pretty powerful threat. When you hear me say that, what do you think? Do you think first they would make it outright illegal? Second, the, you know, excessive taxes on any excessive gains. And then third, would they ever do a CBDC partially backed by, by gold? Uh, so yeah, there's a bunch of questions that we can kind of unpack. So uh, I do think that looking at jurisdictional risk uh, is important for Bitcoin. Uh, and so of course there have been some countries that have banned it or pressured it, uh, whereas you know it's been it's been pretty free uh, in in most major capital markets. Uh, and you know so one of the concerns there is that if it gets big enough, it becomes threatening enough that they might ban it. Uh, and so it it is something to be aware of. Uh, it, so far it's been going in the other direction, where you know for example now banks can can uh, custody it, for example. Uh, and also, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, kind of the, the amount of kind of institutional kind of ecosystem built around it, uh, it's, you know, the bigger it gets in some ways, the harder it gets to ban because that, then you're going after, you know, say, say Bitcoin goes up to a trillion dollar market cap, right? So it, it triples from here uh, and you have, you know, you have fidelity involved in, in kind of institutional grade uh, custodians. Uh, you have, you know, uh, you know, uh, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. You have Stanley Druckenmiller investing in it. You have Paul Tudor Jones investing in it. Uh, you have all the. You have uh, two uh, publicly traded companies on major stock exchanges. Uh, so MicroStrategy and Square uh, have part of their, uh, uh, you know, co corporate treasury invested in Bitcoin. Uh, once it kind of achieves that level of adoption, uh, especially in, among the donor class, right? So it's not just it's not just small retail investors now. It's it's uh, the full stack from the retail investors all the way up to the politically connected. We now have, you know, in the U.S. we have one senator elect that is, you know, she custodies her own bitcoins. Uh, and, it, and we don't know however many other politicians you know have like a coinbase account or something but she's actually kind of a more hardcore kind of bitcoin enthusiast and so basically when you have that kind of momentum that becomes quite difficult to unravel especially if you've seen the the kind of the the fervor among some of the, the bitcoin supporters like you can imagine you know if you look at chile for example back in 2018 they had massive protests over the fact that they raised their like subway fares by like the equivalent of a nickel because it was kind of it was the, the 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 straw that broke the camel's back, right? So it, it was kind of it wasn't really about the nickel. It was about kind of this whole, uh, you know, as they saw it, this this wealth concentration, the you know, all sorts of macro factors playing it, and that was that nickel was the one that they were like, no, that's the last nickel. And so just millions of people in the streets. And so I, I think if you kind of get into that, uh, you know, more kind of banning of of, you know, something that is it's literally it's literally kind of code. It's literally math. It's it's you're basically people have argued that you're essentially banning speech then if Free you're speech, banning yeah. if you're banning this kind of digital asset uh and uh, if anything so there's all sorts of issues like so people have pointed out the privacy issue how it used to be you know early days it was used for like legal uh stuff more often but it's actually funny because it's you know it's because it's actually rather trackable it's literally like if you were a criminal you, you should use cash not Bitcoin. yeah yeah, it really <laughs> totally, <works>. yeah. <laughs> uh, and and so for example 
a lot of those kind of early arguments, I think, are slowly fading away. And as it gets more and more institutionalized, uh, it gets harder and harder to ever ban. Now, I do think that that taxing it to death is probably a higher risk. So, for example, uh, in the United States, gold is taxed as a collectible, which means it has a higher tax rate uh, than uh, long-term capital gains. Uh, and so that's kind of a you know kind of a subtle way of of sort of huh, I didn't know that in the U.S. Okay. Yes. It's, it's a commodity here. Yeah. So we just retax it more like a collectible, and so it, it's just it's just kind of all these frictions around the edges, uh, you know, make things like that harder. Uh, and so I do think that that Bitcoin will have uh, some political pressure uh, in different countries, and I do think that that could certainly affect its price over you know a given year, a given two years. Uh, but then you get into an international game theory. So if one country bans it, another country can say, well, we're not going to ban it. We're actually going to you know subsidize miners, and we want your exchanges to host here. And then you kind of have this this game theory where then whatever country bans it is now kind of risking falling behind on the digital ecosystem, right? So there's not just Bitcoin, there's there's technologies like stablecoin, there's uh, tokenization of financial assets, uh, you know, all, all these kind of things that can reduce frictions for payments or kind of uh, make uh, ownership uh, uh, more divisible of financial assets and things like that. So I do think that they risk falling behind on that if they try to take uh, some of that more hardcore stance against it. So you get that kind of uh, game theory in play. Uh, and as far as central bank digital currencies, you know, the, when they introduce that, like say you ever backed a currency by gold at this point, it wouldn't be backed at anywhere near the level that gold is now. Uh, so that would be part roughly of a, a currency devaluation, right? So if you were to ever reback it, you wouldn't say, okay, gold right now is, you know, call it 2000 and we're going to back, at, you know, you know, gold at current price. It's more like you'd have Got a devaluation. Yeah, you'd have a devaluation, and then to stabilize it from at that low level, you'd have a you know repeg to gold potentially, uh, and so that and that's that's kind of part of how they inflate away debts uh, is to you know kind of reduce that currency relative to something like gold. I mean that's what we saw for example in the 1930s as well. Even before they had that inflationary decade of the 40s, uh, they had a, a reduction of the gold peg in the 30s, uh, and so you'll never see kind of uh, you know modern currencies pegged roughly where they are against gold. You see a devaluation first. Uh, and so it's Got something it. to consider. Okay. What about, do you think another financial system can be built out here? Like, are we going to see a yield curve in this world? You know, do you, do you is, is, cause the more I look at it, I'm like, is there a second financial system just being built out? And the players that be are saying, okay, we're going to milk this financial system for what it is. But on the side here, there's all this stuff being built out that to me, and I know this is a longer play. This is, you know, now we're talking 10 years, maybe 15 years, something like that. But it, it seems to me that there's a second financial system being built out on a, a totally different foundation. Do you see that at all? Oh, that's definitely what we're seeing. I mean, we'll see how far it goes. But in terms of what's happening now, that is what's happening. So, for example, we have now a lending market around Bitcoin and some other cryptocurrencies where you know, uh, you can basically borrow in Bitcoin or you can you can use your Bitcoin as collateral to borrow, uh, you know, fiat currency, for example. Uh, and so that's, you know, for, for companies that have their expenses denominated in cryptocurrency, uh, to, to be able to use their cryptocurrency to get liquidity uh, is helpful. So we are starting to see kind of that credit market develop. We're also starting to see, uh, you know, stable coins, uh, which is, you know, you, you take a fiat currency and you wrap it in kind of like a cryptocurrency wrapper. Uh, and that kind of increases the liquidity within the crypto native system. Uh, so you can, it, it kind of goes around exchanges or financial institutions more readily uh, in that kind of decentralized system. Uh, and it even kind of makes international payments potentially more easier 
uh, and then it provokes all sorts of capital flight kind of concerns that regulators have. And then you, you start kind of uh, kind of pushing up against the rails and causing issues. So I do think we are starting to see this, this emergent um, kind of second financial system. Now we have banks that are specifically kind of lenders uh, to some of those companies. You know, I've also, I mean, I'm familiar with, uh, you know, some of the big investors uh, in the space. So, so uh, investors that fund some of these companies that are involved in either lending or custodying or, uh, you know, things like that. So I do think we're, we're certainly seeing this kind of other system develop. And the big question is how far it goes. I mean, does it get kind of, uh, you know, kind of crippled by, by regulatory action? Uh, does it kind of develop slower than people think? Uh, and of course, you always have these kind of fake breakouts. So if you, back during the during the previous you know Bitcoin bull run in 2017, you had this big kind of a uh, you know ICO uh, phenomenon, which is the initial coin offering, uh, and a lot of that was scammy. Uh, and the SEC started to get more involved. And so you know you kind of have these kind of false breakouts where you have this kind of scammy behavior, and then the dust settles, and then you have kind of uh, you know kind of a, a slower, more real economy develop along along the way so for example like, like the, the the credit markets revolving around cryptocurrency that's been a, a more kind of a long-term steady increase rather than kind of a you know kind of a fad and, and are you see you advise a, you know a, a lot of different people different backgrounds different types of companies are you seeing any more interest recently or curiosity in this kind of space aside from you know the person like me and my brother who are just like holy crap this might be more like hard money in a store value than we ever thought possible we're in you know are, are you you seeing and i guess i know the answer when fidelity comes out and says yeah we're playing in this game you must be but can you tell us anything of what you're hearing without naming names or just some some interesting observations that you're you're making from the space Sure. I mean, there's a couple of things. So I, I wrote um, my, my public Bitcoin article in July. Uh, that was kind of my, my, my big public piece. Uh, and for example, the CEO of MicroStrategy, the first company to uh, uh, put you know, part of their treasuries into um, uh, Bitcoin, he cited that article. And uh, he also cited you know, some of the other kind of- How cool know, was that? Yeah, How really cool was see. that? Yeah, was, was really awesome. good. yeah, 450 million or whatever, 25, whatever the number is, I've lost track. Like yeah. for someone to be citing your article with that kind of move. Yeah, so there's definitely kind of like you're basically re reaching institutional grade investors at that point. And then, you know, I had a conversation with a small bank board of directors, uh, for example, and they were aware of the Michael Saylor kind of decision to put, uh, you know, that money into Bitcoin and were aware that he referenced that article. So they were kind of like, okay, as a bank, what are we missing about Bitcoin? Is it, do you consider it a real asset class? Do you, and so they asked questions about it. And so, for example, you know, I was there to talk to that bank about, you know, kind of some of the stuff we talked about earlier, which is fiscal monetary policy and how it potentially can impact a, a banking uh, institution. Uh, so I didn't even have slides on Bitcoin. I, mean, I didn't think to talk about Bitcoin to them. And so the first question when I was done is like, so what about Bitcoin? Uh, and so there is there is definitely institutional interest. We had, you know, if you look at the, the news over the past 48 hours or so, you know, we saw kind of the head of um, BlackRock uh, fixed income. You know, he, he came out really bullish on Bitcoin uh, on CNBC. Uh, and then we I had- I missed that. I didn't, I didn't know that. Okay, I got it. Yeah, it just came out like a, like probably 24 hours ago. And then we had another guy on Bloomberg talking, uh, you know, uh, kind of a, I think he- I saw at, that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it's, we're starting- I like to the commentator's faces when they're, when they're looking yeah. at him, they're like, they don't, it's like, really? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> they're not yeah. cluing in at all at this point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you're starting to see this kind of breakout in institutional uh, interest. Uh, so whether it's Fidelity, they, you know, they started earlier. Fidelity, they started last cycle, and but it's, it's starting to kind of hit momentum now. Uh, so, but when you see Stanley Druckenmiller talk about it, when you see, uh, you know, uh, 
BlackRock talk about it. it. You know, I think a lot of people it's on their radar now. Now, I do think you know as we're kind of poking near uh, previous all-time highs, I wouldn't be surprised to see you know as as we go up, we get this kind of parabolic interest in it. And you know, probably you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see a correction and consolidation. And then people say, "Oh, see, it was another bubble." Uh, so I do think you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see some some rocky price movements over the next three to six months, uh, just because when you start to see so many people talk about it at the same time, you have to kind of get a little bit cautious there. Uh, but one thing I've I've shown, for example, and I, I've seen others share this, is that if you look at Google search activity for Bitcoin, it absolutely skyrocketed back in 2017. Of course, when you had that kind of big run up. Uh, so search activity skyrocketed. Now, in the year since then, Bitcoin uh, search activity has been pretty low, even though the price has creeped up back near all-time highs. Uh, so there's really not that kind of wide retail kind of fear missing out and like hyper interest yet. It's just kind of still in the early phases for this particular cycle. Like you don't have kind of wide, uh, you know, kind of bullishness on it. We are starting to see kind of excitement in some of these financial media. And so I, I do think it, you know, it's good to be a little bit cautious about no, yeah, maybe the near term. I, I, yeah, I'm personally getting multiple text messages a day. Tom, tell me about this Bitcoin thing again. Where, yeah. How do I get it? Where do, where do I buy it? So yeah. yeah. Um, Lynn, how did you get into this particular role that you're doing? Just as we wrap here, you're really good at what you do. So, you know, your blog posts are excellent. Anyone listening to this, you got to check out your website. We'll give out the URL. Um, I know you have a, a, a membership that you kind of run. And so how did you get into this? Because I think someone on our team was looking into your background and, and I guess they were spying on you, Lynn. There you go. Someone was spying on you behind your back. Today and, and I thought they said you were an engineer. Um, how'd you get into this? You're, you're, the way you break out your thinking is really clear. Like it's really well done. Yeah, I'm an engineer by training. Uh, and so, you know, before I was an engineer, like, like 15 years ago, I was an investor first. Uh, but then when it's, time to, when it's time to go through university, I went into engineering instead of finance. Uh, so I worked in engineering. Uh, and then I then I eventually got a master's in engineering management, so I kind of married that with finance. Uh, so it was kind of engineering economics and, and running the finances of an engineering facility. So I kind of brought those two interests together. Uh, but on the side, I've always just been really interested in finance. It's kind of my my first passion. Uh, and so you know when I made the research firm, uh, it's kind of like taking an engineering mindset and and going and studying things from first principles that maybe you know other is not really kind of being studied in in in, in other institutions. Uh, and just saying like, you know, the, and just kind of doing a lot of data mining and, and research and, and kind of, you know, putting pieces together and kind of approaching it like an engineering problem. And I think that that way of writing, that way of, uh, you know, kind of expressing it has is, is kind of stood out and, and kind of differentiated a little bit. Yeah, uh, you have one article here. I don't know if this is one of your free articles or not. It's banks, QE and money printing. You updated it on November 8th. I yeah. printed it out. I thought it was going to be like 10 pages. So I was reading. It. I'm like, this is really good. I want to print this thing out. I, you can't probably see this on the screen, but I printed out like. This thing is like, I don't know how many pages I just printed out. Like just this report. Is this one of your free ones or is this a membership one? Yeah, that's a free one. I think, that's it's, a, like, I think that's like 60 pages. Yeah. Yeah. 60. So anyone listening to this, because we have a lot of people listening to this say, hey, Tom, Nick, I want to learn about, you know, macroeconomics as well and kind of get into all this stuff. Lynn's article here, if you find this one, you did such a great job. Like it's called Banks, QE and Money Printing. It's updated November 8th, 2020. Just print this thing out and read this thing. You're going to know more than 99% of anyone. I have a feeling like it's just amazing stuff. And, and I, I know it could sound like I'm pumping your tires up here. And, and if that's what it sounds like, I mean it. It's really good. So uh, so thank you for sharing everything that you're sharing. So the URL for Lynn is, is so Lynn Alden's investment strategy website. It's lynnalden.com in the show notes of this. So if you go to rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash podcast and you find Lynn Alden's show, no, show notes, we'll have the, it linked out there, but it's lynnalden, L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-N.com. You have a free newsletter 
that you can yep. sign up for there. I would highly recommend that newsletter. And you're on Twitter. Um, and you know you're getting popular when I think your Twitter handle was all hijacked the other day and people were making fake accounts about you and that whole thing. A little, yeah, I've gotten little... I've gotten three of the copycats banned and then two, oh, of, yeah. them just, two of them just sprung up. So, you know, it's at least Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like whack-a-mole. You're just smashing yep. them down. Keep, yeah. So it's at Lynn. So the correct one is at Lynn Alden Contact. Yes. Correct? Yes. At Lynn Alden Contact. Anything else you want to share about just what you do and what you offer? Uh, no, that's it. I mean, most of my work is free. I do public articles. I do a uh, free newsletter. Uh, and then I also have a low cost uh, uh, premium service for people that, you know, want to get more frequent updates uh, that are more timely or that want kind of individual stock analysis. Uh, so it, depending on what they're after, you know, uh, most people just uh, follow the free material because it's, it's kind of big picture and applies kind of regardless of what asset class you're in or kind of what country you're in. It's kind of big picture stuff. Cool. Lynn, thank you so much for doing this. I know you're busy. Totally appreciate it. This was of huge value. So thank you so much. And uh, great to get to know you better. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I, I think you're doing a great job with the, you know, kind of educating people, bringing all sorts of different voices. Uh, and I think that's really valuable. Thanks for that. Thank you. Appreciate it, Lynn. Thanks. Hey, everyone. So hopefully you enjoyed that chat with Lynn. You can get more of Lynn at Twitter on Twitter. Um, her handle on Twitter is at Lynn Alden Contact. That's at L-Y-N Alden, A-L-D-E-N Contact. So at Lynn Alden Contact. She has a bunch of pirate accounts kind of popping up trying to copy her account and stuff, but that's the official one, at Lynn Alden Contact. If you reach out to her, make sure you say hi. You can check her, check out her um, real estate investing, not real estate investing newsletter. What am I talking about? Her, her macroeconomic um, newsletter and analysis that goes along with that on her website. You can subscribe for that. Wow, I'm really so struggling with this, but we're going to get through it. Um, at lynnalden.com. That's www.lynnalden.com. That's it for now. Until next time, everyone, your life, your terms.